This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the Locust Walk on a beautiful, finally coming around, still a little cool, but we're going to get there April morning, Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, all my buddies and faculty collaborators here on the show. Shane Jensen to my right, Audie Weiner straight away, Eric Bradlow to my left. Good morning, gents. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Going fine, going fine. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We are here. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern, talking sports analytics. You can join the conversation. We wish you would. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four. 942-7866, Matty Dots, producer, boss man, standing by for your phone call. Literally, give me a ring. That's the number. We'll put you on the air. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. That's a great way to reach us if you're hearing, if it's not Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern, you're hearing a replay, and you can drop us a note. We'll get you, we'll get a response to you. You can also drop us a note during the show. We have responded to email real time. Happy to do that. Third way to get us. Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there. You can follow us if you'd like. You can stay on top of the world of sports analytics. That way we follow all of our guests. We tweet through the week. But you can also shoot questions our way. You can add us. You can opine. You can give us suggestions for our over-under segment at the end of the show. At WMoneyBall is a great way to, to reach out to us. All right. That's the setup. We have a normal show today, meaning guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour. Here in the opening half hour, open lines, open topics. I'm curious, as I always am, what gentleman has caught your eye in the world of sports? So I'd like to do a little bit. You know, you're, we're not starting out with the Red Sox. I was going to say, you guys yeah, want to talk some baseball? I thought that's where we were going to no, start it. But I'd, I'd like to do some approximate math this morning and see how you guys think my baseball. approximation is holding. Oh, I, I love approximate math. Well, okay, so here we go. So, since we're sitting in the city of champions here in Philadelphia, <laughs> well, we've oh, got Villanova. the Eagles and, and the Eagles. Yeah. Eagles, right? So, I can use the plural. Um, the Sixers are on a 15-game win streak, and it's never the, it's the longest in the Sixers' history. And, well, in, in and the history if they win tonight, it'll be the longest win streak you know, ever to end the season. So, you say, well, that, that's extraordinarily rare. Except, I want to do the following approximate math with you guys and see how you think about it. So a lot of people have claimed the Sixers really haven't won any reasonable game. Like they they haven't played anybody mm-hmm. tough. So tell me if the following approximate wrath, math is right. The Sixers have played three decent teams, playoff teams in that streak, 12 non-playoff teams. Okay? If you look at the Vegas odds, let's say they've been 50-50 in those three games, so 0.5 to the third is an eighth. Vegas odds is somewhere between 75 and 85% for the other games. Let's just take point A's as an approximation. So if you take point 0.8 to the 12th, meaning they win 12 consecutive games with probability point 0.8, multiply it by point 0.5 to the 3rd, you get roughly 1 in 128. Now, I'm not saying that that's not rare, 
But it's not like we'll never, ever see this again in our lifetime. Considering you have uh, five good teams a year doing this, and every year they all have an ending, so you'd expect to see this every 20 years or so, minimum. Yeah. So I'm just asking you, what's wrong with that math? Like, is 0.8 to the 12th times... Like, it makes an assumption of independence of games, which we could debate whether that's true. It makes an assumption of constant probability. You know, Joel Embiid, you could argue the top rebounder and scorer on the team, did go down halfway through this streak. But is that, like, as our listeners sit out there and say, I wonder how rare the Sixers having this 15-game streak is. I went down to the micro-game level and thought about tough games, so I segregated games into hard versus easy. But I did assume independence, and I assumed... A constant probability for those games. Is that way off? I don't think it's way off. I think the most important thing you did was to consider the strength of the teams that have been playing, and that's what people get wrong often with these streaks. They get impressed with teams that do, that run on, go on a run, but they don't pay attention to who they're playing. If you see a long run, odds are they've been playing weaker teams. And by the way, the best three teams they played in that streak, we could debate how good they are, were Cleveland. Okay, yeah, it's, that's a nice win. Minnesota and Denver. So that's who I'm including in the mm-hmm. good set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no Houston. There's no Golden State. There's no Oklahoma City. There's no Toronto. There's no Boston. So a lot of people are saying, yeah, they're going in with momentum, momentum mm. into the playoffs. A lot of people being you, right? <laughs> no. Okay, so the place where you're, you're potentially, first of all, it's the order of magnitude I think is right. So I don't think I have any dispute there. A little bit of difference. Uh, you can get a factor of two very easily by changing the numbers only a little bit. So if you had 0. 0.6, 0. 0.6, 0.6, we're looking at almost a factor of two between 0. 0.5, 0. 0.5, 0.5. We're not so, almost looking at... It's, it's exactly yeah, that. Yeah. So the point is, is that already we're looking at one in 50, and that's that's the kind of thing that you you shouldn't even be shocked at. Right, right, or right, even right. Or even Or even can, paying attention to. Can we push it forward to what you actually think is going to happen with the Sixers and the playoffs? I mean, as they sneak into maybe the number three spot, as they... Look at having to get past a weaker Celtics team without Irving. Are we? Are, are can we? Can we, can we consider that they might make a run, a deep playoff run? Actually, I'm more worried. Uh, yes, but I'm actually. I don't know why everybody thinks they're just going to win their first round. I mean, this is a team that none of the players, essentially. I mean, JJ Redick, yes, but none of the other players have any playoff experience. We don't know. We're assuming Embiid's going to come back. Simmons has no playoff experience. Covington has no playoff their experience. Their opponent doesn't have a lot of well, playoff they may experience be playing, either, well, right? Who's their, they, well, probably probably likely, right? well, no, we don't know that yet. See, this is the thing. This is the other thing that caught my eye. I'm not going to go through the list right now, but we could. There are eight different scenarios and games today being played today, the last game of the regular season, that affect the playoff ranking and ordering. So we actually don't yeah, know no, who the Sixers play. are playing. And by the way, if they're playing a team which I don't like the matchup against, if they're playing the Washington Wizards, I'm not that convinced that the Sixers are beating the Washington Wizards. I think you have Philadelphia. You still, even though the Eagles have won this year, I still you think you have that Philadelphia mindset where things just work out badly. I don't. I think you're you're you're, you're selling. <laughs> He's them being self protective. Uh, you're being protective. I, I, I'm going to push back at just one thing. I don't think this idea of playoff experience has that much value in my mind. I don't know if it's provable, but there it is. Um, and I'm not so concerned about that. They played they played 80 games a season so far, getting close to it. They played 81. 81 yep. by the time it's finished. That's a lot of experience. And I think that's what matters. So the only thing I would say is the only difference is that, and maybe this is doesn't have to be this way, is that the style of basketball changes in the playoffs. That's yes, one. It does. Which the means opponents no, no, I know, are but are they mm-hmm. right? So, no, well, I'll get to that in a second. Are the Sixers good at half court offense? Because it a lot of times it comes down to half court offense. They're a running team. That's number one. Number two, you just pointed out a, the most important thing: they're not playing the Knicks and the. 
Hawks and the Hornets anymore. Right. They're playing top teams. And this is the biggest thing. Can you can the Sixers beat Cleveland? Yeah, in one game, in a semi-meaningless game. Let's say you beat LeBron James when he has an opportunity to adjust in a seven-game series. That's the problem. It's mm-hmm. not about beating... Can we? Can the Sixers beat Golden State? Yeah, we beat Golden State in one game. So you what, can't... Let's say you beat him in four. <laughs> That's so what are the, the thing right that now? playoff experience matters. Well, I have I'm, that I, information. I, I, I like your think? argument for, for the for the one game versus four, but I'm not sure that it implies that playoff experience matters. It just means the better team will win in seven. Win. So where, where does See, it stand? I mean, so, so Cleveland actually has a worse record than Philadelphia. They've scored fewer points per game. Their, their, their differential, I mean, is, is smaller. It's much worse. Um, th- I know 538's ELO has the, has the uh, Cavaliers is much worse than, than, the, um, than the Sixers. But what does Vegas say? Actually, let me just say, just to correct you, it's not a big deal. Um, right now, ELO has, the 538 has caught up the Sixers and the Cavs are identical, essentially. You can see here, they both, according to them, have a 20% chance of making the final and a 5 6% chance of winning. I, I don't think we should talk about it, ELO. We love 538, but we're not in the business there. In. They use ELO for reasons, and we, know no, we don't that have to. Yeah, I don't think metal. it's particularly uh, no. very yeah, so prospectively I, I, effective. I don't actually have. I don't have Does anyone have Vegas? I guess we'll, we'll I wait don't on have that. Vegas line, but the Cavaliers would have to come be. on. Well, I mean, we can look at Vegas. We know the Cavaliers are going to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do know, then that's a great yeah. bet. They have LeBron James. They've got I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be the hot take guy, though. I'm obviously the hot take guy, um, <laughs> but. Until LeBron James like does not make it to the finals, yeah. Let's I mean, just go with how that. Many, how many times in a row has <laughs> he been seven in a row? Seven, like, seven, he's gone seven consecutive years. Yeah. right now. Years. I, I'm just I'm just the fan wanting. The yeah, Sixers of course we all want somebody. I mean, I mean, not that I have anything against LeBron James. I want some different thing no, to happen in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. But you do put some probability. I mean, you know, there is some chance LeBron could get hurt or Kevin Love could get hurt. Like if Kevin Love went down, you would still put the Cavs. I mean, LeBron doesn't appears indestructible, and he's played eight. Yeah. This is the first year in his career he'll have played all eighty-two games. I've just seen him carry some very like you know basically really bad irregardless. Teams. Of supporting cast, he gets them there. By the way, Vegas odds, courtesy of our producer, minus one ten for the Cavs to make the finals, plus one fifty for the Raptors, plus five hundred for the Sixers, and the Celtics down to plus twenty five. Wow, that is the one. Wait, wait, Celtics monstrous plus twenty five hundred. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Hey, do you have finals. just give me Rufus's number directly after this game? Because I think I want to put a bet in on the <laughs> Celtics at plus twenty five hundred basketball. Uh, he's not a basketball guy. He's, he's, but he can put a bet in for me. How Brad about Lowe's that? just looking for a bookie. <laughs> yeah. Rufus isn't a bookie. You're not, you're no, not going to place a bet through Rufus. Okay, fellas, what else about the NBA? Are you, are you in the say. West no. at all? Well, I mean, there's the a Rockets. lot to say. How about all the fact that there's, again, as I said, I don't remember a season where there was so much uncertainty in who was playing who going up to the last. Matter of fact, it's factually true right now that no playoff matchup is set. Yeah. There's no playoff matchup that's set because with one game left, with one game left that's in the crazy. season. Wow! That's crazy. Because we don't know in either yeah. conference well, on the West, five through eight is up in the air, which by definition implies that you can't know who the top half is playing. And right now, for the six through eight in the East is up in the air. And since three and four is, we, we know Indiana's locked into the five. We know the one, two, and five are locked in, but the other ones are not, which right. means there's mm-hmm. no. Pl- it's one game left in the season, mm-hmm. and we do not know any playoff matchup among this. I'm, That's I'm, exciting. I'm, I'm chagrined that they, that they're all seven game rounds. I mean, the, the basketball playoff season just lasts. It's a second. I'm chagrined that they don't recede. 
they do not reseed as well. Why don't they do that? Reseed, you mean after the first round? Oh, yes. Yeah. Then it kind of kind of propagates the air, and that's a good thing, no? I mean, it, I don't know. Add some noise to the to the playoffs. I I mean, I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm happy. No, I want anything that causes a little more chaos in NBA is good. Yeah, I mean, I or I guess it's 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 yet another testament to just how. I guess the talent dispersion or whatever is in the NBA that we get the same matchup, even despite all despite these the kind of shenanigans they put in to try and like make it more random because they're really trying to, you know, th- things like not receding. That that's yet another I, way you're trying I to wish. put in like it also oh, let's rewards not. it rewards the lower seed right if the lower well, right. seed it, is it, capable it, it, of beating a higher seed. That's what I'm saying. You, yeah, I'm saying it, it, it reward, it, it's them trying to sort of like, you know, try almost like trying to put in mechanisms whereby the best team won't always win. Well, let me ask I, I you, wish I wish you, we could give them that much credit. Let me ask you a question. No, that, it's probably not that intentional. But It, it, it could be- just be laziness. Shane, the same teams receive. always win despite all these a, mechanisms, a, I guess. Let me ask you an interesting question. Who is more, in your mind, certain to make the finals, the Cavs or the Warriors? The Cavs. I think the public agrees with you. Okay, what so, is, so the Cavs, are the, the, fa- so the Cavs are the favorite in your mind, then, by definition, then, Unless the Warriors are a five to one favorite, maybe they are in the finals if they both make it. You think the Cavs have, should have a higher win probability to win the title right now than the Warriors? Well, I, except I do think They're, the Warriors are whoever comes out of the West I, is is a discernibly stronger team than the Cavs. More than two to one? Probably not. So I, I guess I would have the so, Cavs as so, as the so, favorites. Sure. So yep. so by the way, the the. The the odds to make the title are equivalent. The, the Warriors are also minus one ten. Rockets are minus one ten. So it's like basically fifty fifty coming out of the West. So the West the West gives essentially no probability to any two other two teams. Has to essentially right. minus one ten just for they have two teams at minus one ten. Yeah, minus one ten means it's Vegas thinks it's fifty fifty yeah. because they take their ten percent cut. So, so right, the Thunder's at like hundred. Thunder's at like plus twenty eight hundred. Yeah, yeah the, let's the put Blazers that at zero. Are plus three thousand. So they're saying fifty fifty Warriors or Rockets, and then the title odds. They give they give the Warriors and Rockets the better title odds. So the the Warriors By how are much? one plus Warriors are plus one forty, Rockets are plus one sixty, and so they're about equal matchups to the Cavs with a slight edge to the Warriors. But then the Cavs are only plus seven fifty, so they really like the West winner once they make the title. Hmm. Yeah. So that's nice to work that through. Last time we were talking through odds like this carefully were, was the run up to the Masters, and so I'm really curious how Let's you guys see, took yeah. in how you guys took in the to the tournament last weekend. Well, I actually watched part of it. It was uh, go out of here. I watched part of it. Actually, I, I looked through the, the results in the morning and the evening, and I was following along. Uh, just Hold to on, see, like I've seen with a newspaper. I'm hearing the newspaper um, crack. Is that actually, how I did. I did work? look That's at the so Wall Street Journal. It was a little bit old school. They they cover the the Masters pretty extensively. I was actually following Tiger. I mean, I think that's in my mind an interesting story. I think he was a way overrated uh, by the odds. I mean, we we looked at well, the it's at easy the, to the say start. this week. It easy is to say easy this to week, say with you, but I want to actually. This is what I wanted to, to bring to to you guys. Is what did you think? I mean, what what did, what did we learn about from the Masters about Tiger's performance? Remember, he was the second, had the second best odds next to Spieth before the Masters. Where would you put him now that we've seen four rounds in the Masters? Like early odds for the U.S. Open, for example. Yeah, or just what do you think of him as a player? I mean, is he is he really as good as as the top ten at this point? I didn't watch it closely enough to have an opinion. So. I did. I, I lived up to what I said I was going to do. I watched almost every minute of the Masters that I could. <laughs> um, I would say that the following is that what happens is is why I predicted. I didn't think Tiger would win. I thought he would play better than he did. He ended up tied for 32nd at plus one. I thought he would play better. But notice he played better on Sunday. And, and the question you say is why? So here's why. When you haven't played a lot and when the pressure is on, 
you tend to play worse. And so Tiger has – this is not just this year. Even if you look over the last – let's remember, by the way. Does anybody know? Just quickly, you have 10 seconds to answer. What year is the last year Tiger Woods won a major? 13? Like eight years ago. Five, 13, right? 13. Yeah. Right? 2008. Oh. Oh, wow. Oh. 2008 is the last year that Tiger won I wanted to say five years ago, and it's 10 years ago. It's so 10 years. That's off by a lot. No, no, no. It's off by a lot. And so a lot of people forget, even before the back injuries and all of this, Tiger hadn't won a major in five years. Let's let's say he's not been healthy since 2013, 14, whatever the year is. He didn't win a major. His last major was at age 32. So he hasn't. I mean, to me... I'm not that surprised. Under the massive pressure of the major, I just did not think he'd be. And by the way, how did you guys like Phil Mickelson's performance? Well, I, I want to say that I, I was short both those guys last week on air. So this is it's just so much cheap to say, talk about it now. We were talking about it some last week. Mick was, you know, people talked a lot about him. And all the coverage was about Mickelson and, and Woods. It's just, we have to separate the coverage and what sells clicks versus what's actually going to win. But we also have to say, you know, is the pressure, like, do you have to say there's playing, I'm playing in the Doral, I'm playing in Riviera, I'm playing in the Genesis Open. Not just the course is different, but just the pressure is different. But Eric, this is like your motivation. This is like your momentum stuff. I mean, first and foremost, it's just how good are these these guys? No, no, no. But how do you measure how good? It's, I don't care how the Sixers play against Atlanta. I don't care how, how, you think how pressure, Woods plays. I, 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 I think you guys are Woods, saying, uh, uh, you seem to be saying the same thing. No, I, I disagree. Because Tiger and Phil were just overrated. I mean, you think Eric, just by Eric, media But coverage. Eric is now saying he wants to judge a, go, a guy's ability by his ability to perform under pressure. No, I want to judge his ability at Against the, the master uh, at the tough courses and in the majors in his play in those tournaments. I don't want to use the Genesis Open or the Doral or any making, of these others. I think you're making too much of pressure, and I'm and I'm a little disappointed in you. Okay, well, I, wow. I call it you call it pressure, <laughs> and I call it playing under differential conditions. So and why, is, why is that different than clutch hitting? We had a whole guest what, on here. No, I mean, no. you're talking more about the opponents and stuff like that. I think here, right? I mean, you're talking. I mean, tougher courses tougher opponents. You're saying that like Tiger doing well in all these kind of little piddly tournaments is not nearly as impressive. We tended to overrate him due to his success against lesser competition. You only want to kind of gauge his success um, against, you know, sort of essentially majors level competition. Yes and no. Yes, I am saying that, but it's something I'm actually not as saying that at the Masters the penalty for being one yard off, two yards off in your shot is extraordinarily severe. I saw 10 shots during the tournament where Tiger's ball, if it had just hit and stopped 10 yards from the, 10 feet from the hole, the ball ended up 70 feet from the hole in many cases, and many cases off the green. So his level of precision, I didn't think was that much different than in the previous tournaments he played. But the penalty at the Masters is extraordinarily severe. So I'm, I'm not making I- a pressure argument. I'm making a hard course easy course argument and he has not played well at the hard courses in over he's not won a tournament at the hardest courses which is how they set up majors in 10 years right, he's so, got no evidence to suggest right. he's going to perform well at those so by I the way until, until sunday he had 15 consecutive rounds at a major above par 15 consecutive rounds at a major above par so i'm making a non-station i'm making there's uh-huh. two different yep, yep. types of play tiger plays well at certain types of courses at this point in his career 
than others. All right, isn't this exactly the kind of question that the latest analytics should be able to answer? Yes. So what's the latest? Okay, analytics? so for example, I actually actually applied to get some of this data from the PGA, the tour. Oh, they have all the shot data, which tells you exactly. I, I'm I'm hoping to get it exactly the difficulty of the courses and all this information. Shouldn't you be able to take a Genesis tournament and extract information? Well, on I told the quality you that stat. I told you the stat from um, three weeks ago when he played. He was the closest to the pin. Yeah. By any golfer when he got on the green by 10 feet. That's why everyone had said Tiger's back, because his iron play was fantastic. It wasn't that way at the Masters. Now, maybe Cade's argument, which maybe is a good one. The data will maybe probably bear it out. It's a coin flip. Some weeks you're on, some weeks you're off. This was an off well, week that, for that's him. Well, that's a good question. I mean, because I think you, you, we, we, you brought up, Cade, you brought up clutch hitting in baseball. You don't see the kind of blow-ups in baseball that you see fairly regularly in golf and I'm not not the expert but I was looking sort of down at the bottom where you'd see these holes where you know 12 13 Sergio puts yeah, 5 you in the drink you see, and and you hear you 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 see this in in golf it becomes you kind of completely fall apart there's clearly there's a mental component in golf that I think is different from what you see in Real quickly, but there's also this cumulative thing that happens I mean in, in right, baseball right. You, you don't have to go play your ball from the outfield depending on where you hit it so, and not so, only that, but at some point, if your motivation is to win the tournament, you talked about, you know, kind of, there's a non-independence in golf. I don't just mean you hit it in the woods, you have to hit it out of the woods. I just mean, as you start to fall behind, you have to start taking a more aggressive right. approach to catch That's up. Good. And so, all of a sudden now, if Tiger has one or two or three or four consecutive bad shots, he's three or four behind the field. And you start to say, you start to literally, I know golfers do this because I've spoken to professional golfers. You start to count the holes remaining that you have to catch you have up to a take, certain take, number of shots. As, but you, I'm should, talking about, as, as you, should. you should. But I'm talking specifically, I mean, we've seen in baseball people just fall apart. I mean, I remember Chuck Knobloch being unable to throw to first base from yeah. second base. And you knew that he had a psychological problem. There are, there are pitchers who can't throw to first base yeah. and, and keep the runners on because it, it just... For whatever reason, it overwhelms them. I would, and I'm conjecturing this, that the the concern, the pressure, the effect of the pressure in golf on your psychology makes those kinds of blow-ups more likely in golf than you see mm-hmm. in, in other sports. You see it in baseball rarely, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think you might see it in golf more because of the... And the uh, that's a beautiful question, by the yeah. way, right? Can, how can we compare the importance of the mental game across sports? And one very reasonable hypothesis is the the more instinctive the action required, the less the mental game. So, you know, playing, feeling at third right. base is 100% instinct. Oh, yeah. The pressure can't get you there. I'm, I guess returning a serve, I'm going to guess returning a serve from a top from a top player is 100% instinct. I mean, you have to train that instinct. Muscle memory, yeah. But, but in golf, you stand still over ball. That's you right. initiate this multi-second action that involves, you know, 100 different movements. That's pretty complicated and therefore ripe for more mental problems. So I wanted to ask you guys, you know, also related to the Masters, you know, a lot of times when we talk about predictions, we talk about, well, experts got it wrong. In the sense of Patrick Reed won the Masters, he's ranked somewhere in the low 20s in the world prior to the Masters, and you say, well, okay, but should we measure predict, well, you, would, you wouldn't necessarily predict that someone ranked in the 20s would win the Masters necessarily. I wanted to ask you more about generally about how you score predictions, because the other top people in the Masters, Ricky Fowler, Jordan Spieth, John Rahm, these are all top 10 players in the world. So do people tend to over-focus on did they get the winner right, sure. or did they get the collective body of players who should have been at the top? Matter of fact, you could argue they got it about right. Yeah. I mean, they got a bunch, a bunch of top ten players in the world. McElroy was there until last couple of holes. McElroy, Spieth, Fowler, Rom. These are all top ten guys in the world. And how they perform? Well, they ended up in the top ten. Well, I mean, I, 
Okay, I mean, I guess it's it's a low standard by which we can declare success. Oh, well, I'm asking the what top be the twenty standard? players in the in, in in the Masters were, you know, a lot of them were also top twenty players in the world. I mean, yes, I guess that kudos to them. So what's the right way to for do the, it? Oh, I don't think it, there's necessarily. Um, I don't think I have an innovation to offer as far as how to do this better. I just well, I a player know. coming out of no, effectively nowhere. I don't know top twenty in the world. I don't think that's nowhere. A player, if a player was to come out of absolutely nowhere and win the Masters, that was last two years ago. Danny Willett, when when Jordan Spieth collapsed. Any of you guys even know who Danny would, Willett is? That would also be thing. considered a oh, predictive failure. Right, that would be a failure of predictive analytics for that know. to happen. I mean, mm. the basic idea is you put some probability on someone who's way out of the top twenty-five to win, and then you just some little probability, and then if that happens, it's the, it's a predictive failure if you don't put enough probability on the rare person to yeah. do it. Picking yeah, but, but, who but it how is, much I think is not so interesting. I, I couldn't possibly agree more. We, I mean, you have to, and Eric knows this, of course, but it's not. I mean, with a fifty-player cut. And they're the best players in the world. The chance of getting the right guy, or they're just quite, yeah, they're quite wrong. low. So, the, but we, I do think that we miss this psychologically. You look at these favorites. It, the, I think the same thing happens with with uh, the college basketball tournament, where it's a sixty four team field. But once you start looking at just the top teams, the Villanovas, Kansas, Dukes of the world, you talk yourself into they're having a greater chance than they actually do, given the base rate. Just consider the base rate at the tournament. Mm-hmm. I mean, 50 of the top players in the world are playing over the weekend. I mean, the chance of getting the right guy, very low. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, the important thing for a model would be to put weight on something the unusual. field, essentially. And I, I don't want to change this topic to the, your favorite topic, but we talked about it last week with the predictions in the top five um, players in the NFL draft. The idea being, you got to have some probability that some modest surprise will happen in the top five. Well, what yeah, do you mean by I, modest surprise? You mean you're talking about how they're going to perform long term? No, no, no. Who's going to get taken? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. See, we that's, that's, that's a, that's a less, there's a lot less stochasticity to that whole phenomenon, yeah. that whole yeah. thing, so, so, right? No, I mean, of course, it's, it's a much there's more there's not a lot set. of randomness. I think in the only wild we card in the NFL draft actually is if if somehow, some way, Baker Mayfield made it into the top five, which meant that Saquon Barkley or Bradley Chubb was not, because the three other quarterbacks are going probably in the top five. Probably, if you added Mayfield in there. Well, I can do the math. That means four quarterbacks are in well, the top five. Which, we no, were, no, that would be the uns, that would be the form I mean, of that uncertainty. That was what we were talking about last week. What are we? Are we going to have four quarterbacks in the top five? And if you sit there and rank the the, the, the players, you you might very well see it. But if you look at base rates and you turn it I back see, and you say four quarterbacks is really I, I unusual, think, you got to put some more probability on something that you're not ranking. I just, I, I, I think. Um, looking at past golf tournaments, th- those things are more exchangeable year to year. And so you can yes. say, like, you know, top, you, 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 there's more that can be learned from previous years. I just think the NFL draft is so unique each year. Mm-hmm. The actual configuration of the actual teams involved, well, I, so their positional I just, needs, I just want to know. the actual players involved, right. like, so you, available. Are, you're not going to be Bayesian then this year? For the NFL draft, you really look at you don't look at past years to learn anything. Well, you look some my things, Bayesian friend. You've taught me everything I know about the <laughs> well, Bayesian. Of course, you look at past. I mean, by the way, that's not Bayesian. That's just being empirical. But um, yes, of course, you look at past years. But I, I think the relevance of past years is you know not as important as the actual considerations of the positional needs of the te- top teams in the NFL draft and the actual players it, it, available. It, it, I just I, think there's it's less relevance to like the number of quarterbacks selected in the top 10 historically is less relevant. Well, can, I, can we just stay with the Masters for a well, while? I, I, I want to give Shane credit for using the term exchangeable. 
and he's making a nice point. It's like, what's what's what can we exchange and learn from and generalize from, yeah. and what can we not? And um, and he clearly had his coffee this morning because he yeah. also says stochasticity, Man. stochasticity, the exchangeability. I this is a stats class. I looked up all kinds of words before today's show. The only thing I was going to say about the Masters, the part that impressed me the most. And maybe this didn't impress everybody else the most. Um, I, there's a famous quote uh, with, from Ben Hogan from a long time ago, and it relates to this year's Masters. He was leading with the Masters with four to go, and the guy, uh, like a reporter, came up to him on like in the middle of the game, in the round and said, "All you need to do is par out, and you win the Masters." And he goes, "That's it. That's all I got to do." <laughs> and so people forget Patrick Reed yeah. had to par those last two holes to win the Masters. Yeah. Well. <laughs> That's and I mean that's not so simple. No, I mean he's no. sitting there at. And matter of fact, if you go back, I'm looking at the scoreboard right here. If you go back to his round under par at the 11th hole, he was 13 under. If he had finished at 13 under, he would have lost the Masters by one. Yeah. So he played the last seven holes in two under par right. with no bogeys in the last seven holes. Right. So. I think what caught my eye the most was under an immense amount of pressure, including coming up 18 after Ricky Fowler birdied 18, to just hit it on the green 22 feet away. I understand it wasn't an easy putt down the hill, but that, I mean, it's incredible. I, I, I couldn't That possibly. shot on 18 to get on, to, he drove it in the fairway, got it onto the green. All you got to do is par 18 to win the Masters. <laughs> That's all you got to do. Couldn't possibly. Hell, I couldn't have made the three-foot putt that he that he closed the thing out with. I mean, the pressure on that putt alone. It would have been, as far as I'm concerned, totally understandable if he missed that putt. I think that's one of the best things about this year's tournament. Reed won the tournament. What you he don't, won the what tournament. you don't want to see in these tournaments is Somebody someone back who, into who it, backs basically. into it, like yeah. the will it win, that kind of thing. Steve Reed jumped out big on Thursday, and it looked like it might be. I mean, on Saturday, it looked like it might be a really boring Sunday. These other guys, it was kind of great because these other big names made these big runs at him, and he held on. You got to give him credit for holding on. And also, let me just say. The run that Jordan Spieth made on Sunday was also yeah, extremely exciting. And what was also incredible is, I don't know if you guys heard his interview after the round, he, and I believe, I guess he'd have no reason to lie about this, he did not know where he stood. He said he did not look at the leaderboard the entire round. When he finished his round, he was obviously upset that he bogeyed 18. He said he looked up the leaderboard, he said, I could have been four up, two down, five down, I had no it's idea. Unbelievable. It's just beyond me that they do that. Can I ask a, yeah. a, a novice uh, question? Is there big differences in the mean in each round? So was Sunday yes. like a very good day and everybody shot very well, or was it? I mean, it they, they're pushed around by weather and and pin placements mm -hmm. to some extent. That they there are big differences, but it's not quality of play. It is weather. weather. And con it's conditions essentially. And I, and I assume that that actually. I mean, this would be again a nice empirical study. That varies between different courses how much the weather actually has an effect. Like the British Open, obviously, famously, right? right? right I mean, right. The, the British, the British, it's even more. They have within round variability. Well, the yeah, like no, huge, and I mean, yeah, you can lose, you can depending lose. on who you st when, when you start, you have a huge. Yeah, the other thing I was going to say about the Masters was the ideal scoring conditions on the weekend happened because it rained Friday night. That yeah. meant the last two rounds yeah. were played with softer greens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why you saw a bunch of guys shoot in the 60s on the weekend. I don't know how they get the sunshine every Sunday. It is every Sunday. Sunday. Just like Sunday. My Tiger was below par on the last day. Could be. Could be. Could be. That's a helpful way to go on. He closes it out. All right. That is the first quarter. It was lack of, of pressure. <laughs> of our show. <laughs> Better weather. <laughs> Still three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. 
Kate Massey hosting this morning with the Hope Group. Eric, Adi, Shane, just out of an open lines half hour rolling into our guest segments. We have guests this half hour and next half hour. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Both of those are good ways to get us questions. You can also send us questions on our Twitter account, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. Follow Sports Analytics, add us, give us over-unders, whatever you need to do, throw questions at us. Another good way to reach us, at WMoneyBall. In this half hour, delighted to welcome Ross Ollendorf to the show. Ross was a major league pitcher 10 years throwing for teams like the Pirates and the Nationals. He came out of Princeton University in 2005, was once voted MLB's smartest player. He was involved with union negotiations. He's now working with an advanced analytics outfit in Austin called Quantified Communications, helping evaluate amateurs. Ross, glad to have you, man. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I'm excited to be here. Are you calling from Central Texas? I am. Yeah, I'm in in Austin, um, so I'm based out of here for now that way i can go out and help my dad with our cows uh a couple days a week and well uh, ross you're 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 tempting me because you know I, i'm very happy to talk with you about the cows for the next half hour and i, I we're, we're gonna talk cows but maybe we'll hold off and talk a little baseball first you this is your first uh season not not throwing how's it feel how's it feel to be on this side of retirement um it's actually i really enjoyed it so i i um i wasn't sure what i was going to do until about a month ago, I um, I was in Japan last year and hurt my shoulder over the summer. And when I came home, I I rehabbed and was throwing, but I didn't know a if I wanted to play and b if I was going to be healthy enough to. But mm-hmm. I, I wanted to go ahead and, and keep throwing and give myself the option. And um, it turned out my arm ended up feeling really good, um, so I was healthy enough. And so I decided I wanted to play as spring training was starting and Mm -hmm. then, uh, and then didn't, there wasn't a lot of interest from teams right away. And, and I just, I started to feel like I, there were more things I wanted to do at home than, um, that I wouldn't be able to do if, if I, if I played. So, right. Well, last year you had, you had your wife and kid in Japan, right? I mean, this is the baseball life. It interrupts. You got a one year old child and you trap, Flying her to flying, it's a boy, yes, uh, girl. It's a girl. So flying, flying the family to Tokyo. How? Tell us about that last year. That's an interesting way to go out. Baseball is a huge deal in Japan, obviously, and there's a lot of interaction between the Japanese league and the and the U.S. league. What was your experience like over there? So I really enjoyed it, and actually, other than the flight over from a family standpoint, it's um, there's a lot more family time in Japan, especially as a starting pitcher. Um, I had been relieving the last few years in the u.s and i got a chance to start by going back over there and um as a starter you don't stay for the games when you don't pitch so oh wow it ended up really working out well where where my wife and i got to spend a lot of time exploring tokyo and um i guess hanging out with the baby and so that from a family standpoint um it was great over there the the baseball was i i really enjoyed it, it was really a really good experience. They, um, the culture is a little different. It's, I, right. I've heard it's compared to like, I've heard people compare it to like European soccer. The fans are that into it, uh, and there's yeah, noise the like that. Are, yes, yeah. The fans are really into it. The fans are very polite though too. 
That's so an interesting combination. Their team's hitting. It is. They um, so the the culture is very quiet in general. If you're on the on the subway, people don't talk. Um, you walk in the streets, it's just it's for how many people there are, it's very quiet. Huh. And but then if you go to a baseball game, if if the, their team's hitting, the fans are really loud and they're um, just they have uh, bands in the stands. It's it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ross, this the, is this is Eric Brad. I wanted to first of all, I'm a, I consider myself somewhat of a baseball historian, so it's great to talk to you because we've I've followed your career throughout, and it's great to talk to you. I had a specific question to ask you. I've always wondered sure. as a statistician about kind of how what I'll call I'll use a somewhat technical for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball how thick the right tail the distribution is in Japan versus the US like I've always said the best players in Japan they tend to be pretty good matter of fact many of them like we saw Shohei Otani he can make the pros but there aren't as many of them is that what you found when you went over there is that there's there are players with major league talent but instead of 25 on each roster it might be two or three or did you find something different no that's that's exactly right no, that's that's what I found. So they they um, I mean, there's just a smaller pool to draw from, and so here it's those that same number of players are spread out through the major leagues and six minor league teams, and um, so you really the the uh, distribution and quality at the major league level is just much tighter here than than over there. So they're, they're but the best players in Japan are are very very good. Um, Rust are they as, as, as you can tell when they come over. Is the league is are the Japanese? This is a segue back to the U.S. as well. But it, how do the, the the Japan teams' use of analytics compare to the U.S. teams' use of analytics? And, <laughs> and you, you know, you were kind of your career expand from the kind of the not the, quite the dawn, but early ages in the analytics era to my gosh, where we are now. So how how have you seen that evolve, and how does it compare U.S. to Japan, and how did it affect your career? I mean, we, we can be a little bit more specific. I mean, do you see the shifts and the and the reliever cores that you see in, in the United States MLB play? Is that happening in Japan? Well, the the they didn't shift um, like they like they are here now. The so where I mean I, I can. I guess have a sense of, of where front offices are by, by seeing shifts, by seeing how players are used. One where area where we directly see the use of analytics is in scouting reports. Um, in there, they are just as a culture, they're all about quantity over quality. And our scouting meetings would last at least an hour to go over the other team's hitters. And it was, it was too much in my mind. I, I, the Japanese players may have benefited from it, but I, I like a brief scouting report that um, really hits on the things that are unexpected or out of the norm. But there, they would go over each hitter for for five to ten minutes, and usually they were saying the same thing about them, and it was just it was exhausting. But that was um, <laughs> so that sort of that sort of suggests that maybe the analytics are uh, or is a little less sophisticated in that they weren't able to kind of zero in on the information that was actually important to you. They they just sort of decided to list off everything. Yes, no, I, that's I think that's accurate. Russ, um, this this and, this yeah. thing this thing that you were this this award, which I'm sure is kind of silly, but it means something. This MLB Smartest Player Award. In what way do you think your education? And your analytic orientation affected you as a pitcher, and, and where where was it an advantage to you? Um. Well, <laughs> I know it's... I, I, I kind of went back and forth on 
I, I guess that's a tough question for me to really answer, but I, I'll just say that um, with uh, with scouting reports and things, I, where I ran into trouble is if I got conflicting information, I had trouble deciding what to do, or if I wasn't really, when I would get a scouting report, if I felt really good about the source and felt like it was something I could really believe in, I felt like it, it really lifted my game and and gave me something good to focus on. But there were times where either we didn't have enough data or I just wasn't sure if it was being evaluated in the best way. And it, and so I'd get some information, but I, I didn't feel like I could really rely on it. Mm-hmm. And, and just with the way that I would think it would, I would almost get worse by having that. Mm, interesting. Um, it would just be, it would be harder to, you, to have conviction in what I was doing. You you knew um, what you didn't know, which I suppose can be a disadvantage on occasion, especially when you have to execute. Yeah, so Ross, since this is Eric again, since I asked you a right tail question about you know thickness of quality players, now let me ask you a left tail question. Could someone be a successful major league player today and be kind of, I, I, I mean, they're not a graduate from Princeton. In other words, the person is in some sense, can you be non-intelligent, non-numerate, and be a successful player today? Is that possible? Can just natural ability, or do you need to be able to absorb data? Do you need to be able to be, you know, how important, what role does that play? Or maybe it's very little. Um, I, I don't think you need to absorb data. I, I think um, I think for some positions it helps more than others. Um, but I, I think that a lot of times the, the, the keys to success are pretty simple. Um so I'll, I'll tell you, the, from a pitching perspective, I, I think there are a few things that make you successful. One is you need to have good stuff, and, and that typically is seen as being either you have it or you don't, and it's kind of out of your control. And then the other two things would be that you um, throw the right pitches in the right at the right time and that you execute well. And so that's really what a lot of pitching comes is Assuming your stuff is set, it's about are you – choosing the right pitches to throw and are you executing them and i think between those two i think execution oftentimes is more important Mm -hmm. and um and i felt like if i was really convicted in what i was doing and kept it simple i would tend to execute better Mm -hmm. um so and I, i think there are a lot of guys who have have a lot of success by just knowing what they do well and and just executing it really consistently and not paying much attention to to what the other team's hitter strengths are. But the um, with that, I think I think as a relief pitcher, you can just my sense is you can pitch to your strengths more as a and you need fewer strengths as a starting pitcher. You really need to be able to um, to do several things really well, mm-hmm. and then you have when you can do several things really well. Then having information on what what the hitter strengths and weaknesses are is more beneficial because you can you can execute against that and, and kind of attack those things. If you only do one or two things well, then it it doesn't matter as much what the what the hitter does well because you can't um, you can't attack them in, in as many ways. You right. know, it, it, where where pitchers can sometimes get in trouble is throwing things that they aren't really good at mm. because they feel like the situation calls for it or the um, the hitter's weak on that. But mm-hmm. if if you're throwing below average pitches, you're 
you're over time, you're probably not going to do very well. Right. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Ross Ollendorf. Ross was a longtime major league pitcher with teams like the Pirates and Nationals. He's just into retirement, Colin, from Austin, Texas today ross on that on that last point if you're if you're throwing stuff that's not that's not working how much we talk about this but we we talk about it from a distance you've actually experienced it how much does your stuff vary you know game to game week to week or even within game like how when you know what maybe give us an example of your go you know what was your go-to pitch and then how often did it come up where you knew you didn't have it that night and you had to come up with something else is that a thing is that real it, for sure. Um, sometimes it can vary a lot. And I'll, I'll just, there, there, there have been seasons where, where it's been more, con, I've been more consistent than others in terms of the, the stuff that I've had, but, um, but the season's long and, and I think you pretty much always have, have things change. When I was on the Reds two years ago, I came into spring training and the season throwing a really good fastball at, um, it was hard on the radar gun, but more importantly, it had a lot of life and it, um, it just seemed to be getting on hitters well. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I was throwing a really good slider. Um, I started my elbow, I throwing cutter, uh, throwing a cutter before a game, just in practice. Um, I kind of tweaked my elbow one day and, oh, and, it, and then going forward for, mm-hmm. for a little while from there, um, I just lost the life on my fastball. Wow. And, so I, I was still throwing hard on the radar gun, but it just wasn't, it didn't have the same impact on, on the hitters. And my slider wasn't as good either, but luckily my changeup was really good. And so I went to, <laughs> I, I mean, some outings, I was only throwing an inning, some outings I would throw 50% changeups, whereas that, that wasn't normal for me. If my, if all three of my pitches were, were working really well, I'd probably throw one changeup an inning. And so luckily I was able to, to make that adjustment and get by as best I could, but there are other times where I wasn't able to make make an adjustment like that. But um, with with, with an adjustment like that, um, yeah. with an adjustment like that, uh, did you kind of notice were were hitters kind of quick to sort of readjust to you? Because I, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, a, a, a repertoire that involves too many changeups is, is is a dicey proposition because because if hitters know it's coming, that that's a that's right. a bad thing. So. So did you sort of notice, like, as you kind of all, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about this sort of feedback loop where as as you kind of make these adjustments throughout the season, do you kind of feel like teams, especially teams like in your division that are playing you repeatedly, are they, do they kind of readjust to you? Do you start seeing limited success with a, with kind of a, a more heavy change-up repertoire? I didn't as much as I expected I would, mm-hmm. and I think that that's because I was just, I was pitching the sixth or seventh inning typically, and there wasn't a lot of focus on me. If, if I'd been starting, I think it would have really stood out that I was doing that. And um, hitters would have spent more time studying what I was doing or at least listening to the coaches on, on, um, on what I was doing. I, I was surprised they weren't making more adjustments. Another thing that I did that season was um, with two strikes. So I, I, I went to kind of a last few years and, a big windup where I would swing my arms and, and I had a big leg kick. And with two strikes, I started, I would still swing my arms, but I said during a big leg kick, I would just step towards the plate and to mess with the hitter's timing. And I did it about 10 different times with two strikes every time I threw a slider and they swung at it almost every time, I think nine out of 10 times. And I kept thinking they're going to realize that I'm just bouncing a slider every time I do this, but 
Um, <laughs> but they didn't, and I think it was mainly because they just weren't – there wasn't – they didn't know to – Right. The, the people doing the research didn't spend enough time on me to – to really care that so so kind doing. of the follow-up question then is you know with your experience in the japanese league where you're actually starting um did you kind of feel like i mean obviously when you first arrived there you were pretty much an unknown product and i assume that you know you the the hitters took a lot of time to adjust to you but you were a starter so did you kind of see the japanese hitters adjusting to you as the season went along so the coaches definitely thought they were going to. So I, I came in throwing three pitches. I threw a four-seam fastball, a slider, and a changeup. They really wanted me to throw at least one more pitch, and, and really two. They wanted me to throw a split, and they wanted me to throw a curveball, and they were also wanting me to throw a sinker. It, it was <clears throat> the coaches kept saying that they were going to adjust. I didn't stay healthy enough, healthy long enough to really know um, if they would have adjusted or not my thought when the coaches were saying that my belief has been that i should only throw pitches that i can throw really well and and it's just kind of it's a different mindset to throw throw more pitches to keep the the hitter off balance and keep him guessing more right so there's those are two different approaches and um and i was i tended to be on the only throw the pitches i can throw really well side so there was the coaches felt like they were going to adjust, and I just I didn't pitch long enough to to really know the answer. So, so Ross, this is Audie Weiner. I, I want to ask you a question. I think it's on a lot of people's minds. Um, Shohei Otani is playing in in the majors now, and he's doing what most most of us, including myself, would have thought was impossible. We'll see what he does in the in the in the long run, which is be a, a top pitcher and a top hitter at the same time. Now, you were in the Japanese league, so you kind of understood what happens over there. And I was essentially saying, well, okay, it's one thing to be a good hitter in Japan; it's another thing to be a good hitter in the United States in, in the MLB. What do you think of this? Is it is it really just like a, a, um, a, the idea here in in the U.S. that we just say you you got to pick one, and that we actually take uh, players who potentially could be great hitters and great pitchers and just force them to choose. And that has been historically and actually uh, 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 the right thing for most people, but for not everyone, and that maybe that's a mistake. Or is this just some freak phenomenon that, that is really unanticipated and will and, and should just be left as a singularity? It's a great question. I um, I guess I'll be surprised if he if he's able to do both for, for a long time. Um, Obviously, the early indications are he's off to a great start with both. Um, I just, when people were talking about it, I, I felt like there were other guys here who who could have done both. Um, there are pitchers who've who've pinch hit um, for teams. I know Carlos Zambrano used to do it quite a bit for the Cubs, and um, there've been other pitchers more recently. I just feel like it's to be so elite at both. I think is is really difficult and I think physically too I just it, it's probably going to be harder on him the not say he can't do it and he I, I just I, I'll be surprised if he can do it but it, he certainly it's certainly possible I, I, I feel like there are a lot of there are I feel like there are a few pitchers in the major leagues who are very good at hitting and um, but but even so they're just when you're using your dh spot you need to be so good at hitting right it's just it's hard to yeah when you say that there are pitchers someone could be so elite at, at, at both hitting and pitching 
I mean, being good at there's there are pitchers who are good hitters, but they're hitters. They're just better than the other pitchers. They're just not. They're not good hitters. I mean, if you look, take a look at say Bumgarner, who's a, who's traditionally been thought of as one of the best pitchers, his slugging percentage is six hundred. I mean, it's not like he's a good hitter. But Otani seems yeah. to be a genuinely a good hitter. And and I'm wondering whether or not there could be other pitchers out there who who if they didn't just sort of drop the idea could also be good hitters. Adi's basically wondering whether you can make a comeback on the other on the, at the plate. Ross. <laughs> well, we've seen it. I mean, we have seen pitchers. I mean, and the other way around. Ross, Rick listen. Keel, uh was pitching and then um, had the yips and came back as a hitter and right. made to the major leagues. Right. So it, there, there are people who have the skills for both. Um, and so I, but I, I just don't know. I, my thought on it is with the, how good Otani's stuff is and how well the Japanese pitchers tend to execute. I would think he's just going to be terrific as a pitcher, um, and I and I don't know if, if he'll be as good as a hitter or not. Right. But he he may. I really haven't don't know enough about him to say. But right, um, Russ, listen, man, we're going to have to run here at the top of the hour. But um, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We sure. loved watching you play, and we're wishing you the best now that you're in the cattle raising business and out of baseball <laughs> altogether. But listen, man, thanks for jumping on with us this morning. Sure, yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. That was Ross Ollendorf, longtime Major League Baseball pitcher, newly in to the retirement part of his life, calling in from Austin, Texas, where he and his family raised Longhorn cattle. This is the end of the first half of the show. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen. You can join the conversation. The number's 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, business radio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall, we follow our guests. We tweet periodically about sports analytics. You can send us questions. You can send us over-unders for the last segment of the day. We are between our guests just off the phone with Ross Ollendorf, longtime Major League Baseball pitcher Ross Ollendorf, rolling into the next guest segment. We're going to have Bruce Feldman here. Delighted to have Bruce back on the show. Bruce, Longtime reporter in college football world, now with Fox Sports, Sports Illustrated. He's also an author of multiple books, including one called The QB, The Making of Modern Quarterbacks. People always want to talk to Bruce when the NFL draft rolls around because the NFL draft is always led by quarterback conversations. Bruce, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, guys. Good to be on with you. Appreciate your taking time to be with us. You're on the East Coast somewhere, is that right? I am. I was at Nebraska yesterday, and I flew to Columbus, Ohio late last night. I'm going to spend a couple of days with uh, Ohio State. Oh, wow. All right. A couple of interesting programs these days, Different, very different um, recent histories in college football. But um, we're glad to have you over here because it's easier to get you than when you're on the West Coast. And, again, thanks for taking the time. Are you tired yet of talking about the draft, and in particular the quarterbacks in this draft? No, never tired about the draft. Is that right? I'm not— I'm not a fantasy sports guy, and you know, but I love 
you know, I've always loved like kind of dra- the draft or recruiting and the whole evaluation process because it's really to some degree a crapshoot. And, yeah. you know, I think when you have quarterbacks at the top of it, it just gets even more polarizing. Right. And this is one of the great quarterback crops. I mean, the people talk about 83 and then 99, and this is going to rival that for the number of QBs taken in the first round. What is your what is your assessment of the quarterback class? I mean, people are all over the map on this thing. They are. Um, you know, of the guys, the guy I'm most skittish of is Josh Allen from mm-hmm. Wyoming. Mm-hmm. He's the guy with the by far the biggest arm. He's an athletic, huge guy. But here's where it gives me pause is his accuracy is really questionable. Uh, he struggled whenever he played, you know, even decent competition. His offense really struggled and people can say okay well they didn't have very good players around him it's wyoming last year they had like four guys on that offense in 2016 who ended up playing in the nfl it's not like he didn't have any players Mm -hmm. and you know you're in the mountain west you're you know that's a league that that Derek carr lit up that's a league that david fails lit Mm -hmm. up Mm -hmm. um so you know how accurate is he how well does he process things and, and make adjustments when things are going that that definitely would concern me. I'm not saying, you know, I, I'm convinced he's going to be a complete bust, but he's the guy I would be most gun-shy of of this group. I think the one who has, the, to me, the lowest bust factor is Sam Darnold. Okay. Uh, good athlete in the pocket, can really extend plays, playmaker, act, you know, anticipates well. He does have some turnover, you know, issues. He He's... You know, I think decision-making's got to tighten up, but he's only been playing the really quarterback a couple of years, and, you know, he had to adapt to a largely new group of receivers last year. They put the program on his back. I think he responds well to pressure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say he's going to be, you know, John Elway or anything like that, if you want to talk about the, you know, the, the draft class from 83. Right, right, yeah. right. You know, we're so influenced by our individual experiences. So I'm, I'm a Longhorn guy, and he and he drove USC down the field under pressure to take the game la- last year. And I've been scarred, but also kind of impressed by Darnell since. You're over there in Los Angeles. You get you get time around these guys, Rosen and Darnell, both out of the big LA schools. How do you think that kind of firsthand exposure affects your evaluation? What what are the pros and what are the are there any cons? You see some cons to being that familiar with them. Uh, great question. I do. So the QB, that book I worked on, the book really ends with this quarterback crop. They're going they're at the time they were going to be high school seniors. I was around them for a bunch. Josh Rose and I live in the same town, so I know his family, you know, a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, there has been this talk about how Cal- Southern California and California doesn't produce quarterbacks. That class, there was a couple other quarterbacks in there who were hyped up who had not, you know, have, have really struggled since then. One is Blake Barnett, who started out at Alabama. Is, you know, ended up at Arizona State. The other one was Ricky Town, who was actually right. a really hyped-up quarterback right. in the USC class. He he ended up leaving there in a hurry. Darnold flourished. He had bounced from Arkansas to a junior college. and um, But Rosen, I think this is where it can impact negatively a little bit. You know, I was around Josh, and it, when you're around somebody at 17 years old and you're interviewing them in these settings, you know, the kids aren't always – have the most, best perspective in how to handle it, you know, and I think with Josh, he's a no-filter guy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and maybe now he's a low filter guy, but just he would just kind of say whatever he thought, and it was it was like he was brutally honest, and sometimes he could say things where you're like, well, that's not that tactful, or that was you mm-hmm. know kind of sounded I don't know if it sounded arrogant or it just sounded so confident. And look, he is super talented. Um, yeah, to me, he's the best passer in this class, and he's mm-hmm. the best passer that's come out in a while. He's just wow. everything looks smooth with him. He's really, really bright. Um, when I talked to some NFL quarterback coaches at the combine, one of them said, "You know, when I put them through, uh, you know, what we do with our protections and our terminology, I try to lose the quarterbacks because I want to see if they can keep up or how well they can keep up." So Josh Rosen was by far the sharpest guy. He knows mm-hmm. football inside and out. Um, you know, but people will will some people will ding him for his persona. I don't even mm-hmm. want to say it's his personality, but it's his persona. It's like kind of the image of what they think Josh Rosen is. You talk mm-hmm. to some of his teammates, you talk to guys who work with him, they don't get that reaction. But if you get like a quick snapshot of him, um, maybe you don't maybe you're you're unsure of how well he can lead a team and how well players will other players will relate to him and how, you know, is he coachable? Um, I didn't get that vibe from the guys I know who actually coached him, though. Okay. So it, this this has to be one of the hard things about QB evaluations. There are so many factors to keep track of. I mean, there's always another consideration, and we're not good at considering, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12 variables. You've talked about being a good passer. We've talked about coaches evaluating his ability to process, you know, what's going on in the field and intelligence, essentially. Now you're talking about leadership and teammate reaction. So let's just stay with that one for a second because it does seem to be an important one and possibly a differentiator across this year's class. We haven't talked about Baker Mayfield yet. What we know about Mayfield is that he can lead a team and we know that he is very fired up and and seemingly like Football's terrifically important to him, in contrast to at least the knock on Rosen. What do you make of that quality? How how important do you think it is? And might it allow someone who might not be the biggest guy in the world, Mayfield, to actually succeed in the NFL? Yeah, I, I'm, I would not bet against Baker Mayfield. I, I was around him a bunch uh, covering games for Fox, and so got to know him. I know that staff really well. But when the lights are on, he's on. I mean, he, he is the heartbeat of that program. Guys respond to him. You know, if he was six three, I think he'd be. If he was six two, I think he'd be the first pick of the draft, yeah, no doubt. Right. Um, but you know, we've seen with Russell Wilson. We certainly seen with Drew Brees. Uh, you can you can thrive in the NFL if you are off the charts or at the top of the charts in other aspects. And I think Baker is. You know, I. I I think some of the maturity is a, is a legitimate concern, but I don't know. I wouldn't, you know, he's not Johnny Manziel. I knew, you know, and you can go into the book, uh, the QB about Manziel and some of the, you know, I talked to one personnel guy about Johnny, and Johnny had major off-field issues that ended up manifesting itself in disaster in Cleveland. Um, I don't think, Baker doesn't have those issues, and if he has some issues, you know, I don't think it's, it's in the realm of ooh, this is this is a guy we should take off our draft board, right? Bruce, I, this uh, this is Eric Brothers, since this is an analytics show. I have a analytics, but a what the eye test does for you question. So, Kay just talked about all the variables that one might want to use to predict the success of quarterbacks. In your experience, with all the testing we have today and all the measurables, what's not measurable? 
Why is it important as you travel the country and get to know these players? What can we not just tell from a bunch of IQ tests, Wonderlick tests, you know, 40 time lifting? You know, you can measure the release time now. What's not measurable? What's not measurable, I think, is how quickly they process and when they know where to go with the ball Mm -hmm. and how they respond to pressure. I'm not just talking about, like, to pressure necessarily when they're being rushed, but how they can, when the lights are bright. I, I, I go back to this anecdote early on. There was a guy who coached Brett Favre and also coached and recruited Johnny Manziel, you know, a longtime quarterbacks coach, and he said, you know, we had a guy, there was a guy I worked with, and this turned out to be Rick Meyer, who he said, you know, looked great and all these other things, but when the lights came on, he just couldn't really see it that well. Wow. And that's an issue. You know, one of the things that I think analytics get better at is, so we can look at the number of, of, of uh, accuracy and, and completion percentage, but what exactly is, you know, 55%? Is 55% in one offense the same as 65% in another offense where it's dink and dunk and it's a, it's maybe it's in a conference where the defense is, is very suspect? Um, what kind of throws? You know, like, I think if I was in this business where my livelihood depended on drafting quarterbacks, mm-hmm. I mean, you got to look at every throw they made. And, you know, just because the pass is completed, and I, I did a game, our crew did a uh, Ohio State game against uh, Army at, like, week three this year. And JT Barrett is in this draft, and he's a quarterback who is not a great passer downfield. You know, he's a good leader. He was the only three-time captain in the history of the school. You know, he completed a – I want to say we might have been like two for eight on passes that I would consider downfield. Mm. But one of those passes, it was completed, but, like, the guy had to catch it sitting down. He was open. It was just like, <laughs> you know, I think when – you know, there are certain things, and analytics get better with this, but it's not like you can necessarily put it in a tweet where you can say, okay, so-and-so completed 58% of their passes. You know, that's a snapshot of it. Right, right. I think to get a better window of it, you have to see, okay, what what was that throw – um, yeah, it was caught, but was it on the money? Was it, you know, was it a wide open guy? You know, in college, you know, wide open is way different than it was in NFL. Right. You know, I remember going back to working on the book. I was out with Johnny Manziel had Cam Cameron out there helping him, and Cam Cameron was like, he stood in front of me as like an example, and he goes, Johnny in college, and he was like within like two or like eight feet of me he goes in college this is open and then he goes in the nfl this is open and he had you know anquan bolden and he goes you just throw it that's anquan bolden he's open if somebody's <laughs> on you and right. it just you know i think for some guys they can't adjust to it because do they trust it and i go back to a guy like uh, ej manuel when you talk to him he's really thoughtful and a, a likable guy and the thing i'd always heard was you know he really didn't trust you know, he had to see it and trust it, and just like some guys can't get past that. Right, right. Bruce, last year you were intrigued by Pat Mahomes, and um, he apparently has some confidence. He's earned some confidence in Kansas City. What was it about him that caught your attention, and what do you think we've learned about him so far? And and what can we can we extract anything about that? Can we can we what do we learn about the NFL draft that Pat Mahomes, who was under the radar for a long time, might might um, make it in the NFL as a starting quarterback? Well, what what intrigued me most, so Pat has a huge arm, you know, almost as strong, I would say, you know, as our Wyoming guy, Josh Allen, but he could make so many off-platform throws and grew up kind of aspiring to be Aaron Rodgers, 
throwing against his body. You know, he was a baseball player. He's a really good basketball player. And just things where unconventional stuff where he was so raw. And Cliff Kingsbury was basically just like, hey, go play. You know, like he was kind of, Pat Mahomes was kind of a rules breaker, not off the mm-hmm. field. He's a, you know, honor student and a nice kid, mm-hmm. but just in terms of what they would do scheme-wise. And he ended up overtaking Davis Webb, who's a talented quarterback in his own right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's got to be noted with Pat, especially at Texas Tech, they had a horrific defense, arguably the worst in all the country. <laughs> right. And to be the quarterback of a team where you have, you know, if you're not perfect every series, you're probably going to lose. I think that's a ton of pressure to put on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, couple all that together, um, you know, he's intrigued. Now, can he learn, can he rewire his brain? Because he had told me, you know, there are plays before the ball is snapped. I know exactly what I'm going to do. And he's not saying, I know exactly what I'm going to do because I've looked at the defense, I've evaluated everything. He's just like, in his head, He's predetermined. I'm just going to take off and run now because mm-hmm. that's the way I'm feeling it. As opposed to, I look over here, I see the coverage, and this is open. And his instincts, I think, where Aaron Rodgers had talked about in great deal, we've talked about this, you know, when, when he was talking about how he learned from Brett Favre by studying him and the stuff he would experiment with on the, against the scout team on Friday. Aaron Rodgers could rewire his brain. I, that's very hard to do. I, can Pat Mahomes do it? We'll see. I mean, obviously, Andy Reid's a, a believer. I think that's going to be a very fun experience, experiment to watch. So, I remember you're reporting that you talked to a, a QB coach or, or, a, or a scout, a well-placed guy in the NFL, who said there's no way this guy's going to win. Like, he was mm-hmm. so short, Mahomes. So he was, he was one of these divisive candidates. This takes us back to the, the beginning of the conversation. What, what is so hard about QB evaluations? But how did they? How did those guys who spend a lifetime evaluating QBs? And we're not saying Mahomes is going to be you know Pro Bowler yet, but they seem. I mean, that strong an opinion was wrong if the KC if KC just traded yep. away Alex Smith. Yeah, and I you remember exactly where I was at the combine. It was a Saturday night over drinks, and I was surprised. And this is a really highly regarded uh, NFL coach who had told me this. Um, and I still go back, like I've, I've mentioned this to, to my colleague on our podcast, The Audible, just about um, the context of that, because you have people all over the board. And that person was like, I wouldn't even draft him. Right. You know, just like, exactly. was just so turned off by what he saw in terms of he just doesn't think he could play in the NFL. And it's not like, you know, you take a guy off your draft board because, you know, a few years ago, there was a big junior college receiver who went to Auburn who was like a mess at the combine and I remember thinking okay why would anybody draft him you know kind of thing mm-hmm. because of his baggage that's right. not Pat Mahomes has no baggage but it was just this person was convinced when you have this um, mindset and this is how you play it doesn't translate to the NFL mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. Andy Reid's one of those guys where and there aren't a ton of them but maybe it's there's been a little morphing to the college game a little bit I don't know if it's been overstated, but maybe there is a little more openness to this. And and uh, again, like I said, it's it's going to be an interesting experiment. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see, you know, that guy. Maybe that guy will be proven right in the end, and maybe Pat won't right could shine be. in the NFL. Could be, could be. All right, listen, Bruce. Thanks for taking time out of your trip. Appreciate your making it. Appreciate appreciate your making it back to the show. We love the work that you do. We wish you the best with it going forward. My pleasure. Always good to talk to you guys. It's, I really enjoy the kind of 
process you guys are about. It's unique, and it's I'm I'm glad to see that uh, you know it keeps getting more and more traction. Thanks, Bruce. Much appreciated. That Thanks, was Bruce John. Feldman, longtime college football reporter. He's with Fox Sports and Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Bruce Feldman CFB at Bruce Feldman CFB. He also has a fantastic podcast podcast called The Audible, co-hosted with uh, Stuart, Stuart Mandel. So Bruce is on with Stuart Mandel on The Audible College Football Podcast. We are going to roll in here with a second guest before going to break. Longtime friend of the show, good buddy of ours, Neil Payne from 538. We're going to grab Neil for a few minutes before we hit the bottom of the hour. Neil, how are you this morning? Great. How are you, Kate? I'm fine, fine, fine. What 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 are you doing? Are you are you recording any videos? Uh, are you are you doing any glamour shots over there at five thirty eight? Well, we are. Uh, we're going to do a video for the start of the NBA playoffs, but we're all just sort of sitting around waiting to see how that's going to shake out. So it's kind of a big, big moment for uh, for NBA fans and and journalists today. We've got so many different playoff spots kind of up in the air and. I think uh, I read this stat, the Nuggets-Wolves game, which was basically a de facto play-in game for the NBA playoffs, I think it'll be only the third time in the current NBA po- uh, playoff format in which uh, basically the last game of the season will determine uh, whether a team will make it in if they win or they will miss the playoffs if they lose. So that's pretty exciting. Neil, tell mm-hmm. me, you know, yeah, it's exciting, it's fun, Yeah, they can novel. have a great chance. <laughs> d- d- tell me, does it matter? Yeah. What, which of these play-in games, which of these slots do you think is most consequential? Well, yeah, that's funny because, yeah, for all the talk about this uh, Nuggets-Wolves game, the reward for making the playoffs is just getting served up to the Houston Rockets Uh, So so that might not be much of a reward at all. Uh, But, you know, I think Minnesota is an interesting team with with Butler back. I'm not saying that they have much of a chance to win that series, but they'll probably be better than your your typical eight seed if they actually do win the game. And they could actually rise as high as as a six seed. So it's kind of tough to even say with uh, so much up in the air what the implications of it will be in the playoffs just because – uh, so many seeds are as yet to be determined. I, I don't think I've ever seen something like this where so few specific seeds are nailed down going into the last night of the regular season. That's one of the things I had talked about, which is that none of the actual games, no games, we do not know who's playing who at right. any of the games right now. And you just brought up an interesting thing. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this. People forget the Minnesota Timberwolves-Denver winner isn't necessarily the eight seed. They could be the six seed. So that's another thing that, I mean, I think is really fascinating about the way the playoffs are going. Right, and in fact, if the Nuggets win that game, they cannot possibly be the eight seed because of tiebreakers. They could they could not fall lower than the seven seed, which is kind of mind-blowing to think about. You're either the nine seed, meaning you're the best team to not make the playoffs in the West, or you are the seven seed and potentially even higher than that. I think they could be the six seed as well. Guys, I'm, I think y'all are making a big deal out of this because there's nothing else interesting about the NBA playoffs. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on, I, I really want to hear Neil's, Neil's take on the, the on the conversation we had earlier, which was the question of, is it really just ca- uh, the Cavaliers with almost certainty in the East? Uh, well, no. I mean, I think the Cavaliers have, uh, maybe we say this every year, but they have less certainty this year than probably in any other year that we've looked at it. Uh, and I know a lot of people are skeptical about the Raptors just because they have played the Cavs, I think, in each of the past two playoffs, and they haven't really uh, shown themselves to be at that level. It's been kind of easy wins for the Cavs both times. The Celtics 
looked like they could have been a team uh, that that really contended with a team like the Cavs before Kyrie Irving got hurt. Uh, and the book is still out on the Sixers, your your hometown team for you guys. Uh, they are rising up and, and look like they're more likely than not to be the three seed in the East over the Cavs, who would be the fourth seed. I don't know. The, this, this year's Eastern Conference playoffs, I think, are less certain than at any point in what we would consider to be the LeBron era, which I guess also includes the Heat winning the East. So LeBron himself, I think it's been seven straight years that uh, yes. his team has won the East. And this might be the year uh, that that is least certain about it. And that says something about the Cavs, even though they've played much better recently. They shook up their whole roster at the trade deadline, and, and we still don't really know. There's a lot of questions about them going into the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, about whether they're as much of a lock as they've been in the past. Well, I, what I, as from my point of view, sitting at not really such a basketball um, connoisseur, if you will, I think there's a biggest difference between the data and just what say what most people believe. This is a very divergent situation. Mm-hmm. Like they're fourth, oh, very ra- much so. And so, it's, and that to me is very interesting. Like, how come the data isn't riding out stronger? Is it just because we just believe in LeBron? Yeah, I mean, well, I think the belief in LeBron is a big part of it, and that has been borne out. I mean, we sort of went through a version of this last year where our model, because we have this ELO-based model that tries to predict the NBA playoffs by assigning each team a power rating, and it has various adjustments and so on and so forth, but it had the Cavs as, you know, maybe the fourth highest favorite or something like that in the East. So not in the in the NBA, but in the East alone going into the playoffs last year because they had this really dreadful second half. And ELO in particular, I think, um, has a pretty big recency effect in it. And most of the time that works out, it's kind of calibrated to try to work out uh, and, and be as accurate as possible for that reason. And yet at the same time, uh, the odds said the Cavs were heavily favored to win, and they did end up winning, and it it took a long time for our model to kind of catch up to that. Uh, And this year, you're seeing that with not just the Cavs, you're seeing that with the Warriors. I mean, the Warriors lost by 40 points last night, and and our model, I think, if I uh, can vamp for a second and look at their odds of winning, our model gives the Warriors a 4% chance of winning the NBA title. That is ridiculously low, and I don't believe that for a second, but that's the consequence of of using kind of a statistical model to try to that's based on regular season data to predict the playoffs. Uh, and if you look at something like Vegas, which I assume has the Warriors, yeah, their favorites to win it all, uh, they're using kind of a combination of a lot of different factors, and maybe the stats are getting more downplayed. And we're seeing that more in recent seasons more than ever of the regular season just not mattering almost at all to certain teams that are so stacked with talent and have been resting players or they sort of can't, they don't want to keep that focus to, to blow through the regular season when they know they're going to have a long playoff run in front of them. And that kind of taints the data that goes into the models that try to predict the playoffs using the regular season because the games matter for some teams and they don't matter for other teams, and there's not really a great way to kind of program in which which team falls into which category, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, do you think, I mean, does basketball kind of stand alone in this aspect, that the, the, the playoffs are so kind of, I guess, almost disconnected, like a different season from the regular season? I think that is correct, yeah. Like, uh, you know, you think about the NFL uh 
week 17 or something like that where teams like rest their starters and and the games don't matter those can kind of play like a little bit of an effect if you're using like a power rating that doesn't account for that but i think in the nba it's like week 17 of the nfl season for like huge swaths of the entire regular season for for some teams and i do think that that's unique because in the NBA, it's so deterministic that, you know, the best team wins more often than not that you can almost like if you have a talented enough team like the Warriors, you can kind of pick your spots of when you really kind of need to bear down and try to win games versus when you are conserving yourself. The way the, the schedule stacks up in the NBA, uh, teams are more cognizant than ever now of like, look, there are effects of travel distance and, and playing a certain number of games and a certain number of nights where we want our guys to be at peak performance at the start of the playoffs. We don't care about uh, whether they play at their 100% uh, effort and, and talent in February, and we can kind of coast through the regular season, get this, a seed that's like minimally acceptable. Maybe we'll have home court for the first couple rounds or whatever, and then the real season will start uh, once you get to like the Western conference finals or something like that. I don't think you see that uh, in other sports just because if you're the best team in baseball, you can't really take it for granted that uh, first of all, that you'll even make the playoffs. We've seen teams kind of collapse down the stretch in, in horrible Septembers uh, a few times in recent years. And then, you know, it's a short series uh, in, in baseball where you can't take anything for granted along the way to the world series, no matter how good you are. So basketball is sort of the sport where it does seem like if you're talented enough, you can take things for granted for enormous amounts of the regular season and even into the playoffs, which is pretty unique. Neil, couple of before we have to let you go, a couple of quick questions about recent pieces you've done. You wrote about the Sixers' lack of playoff experience. Where do you land on how important that is? Well, I mean, you know, I think it is a factor and maybe a bigger factor than Statheads had given it credit in the past. We did a little bit of research to try to determine how much of an effect it has, and we found that, yeah, you know, it, it shifts team's playoff odds now in the case of the Sixers I think it goes back to what we were just talking about with the Cavs they're sort of the anti-Cavs they're on this great hot streak to end the season they've had an amazing season um, especially by the franchise's recent standards and so it's tough to know how much weight you give to that versus a team like the Cavs who have been a little bit disappointing in the season uh, but have these loads of playoff experience and our model tries to account for that, and I don't know if it's right at all because it, we have the Sixers as a seven percent favorite to win the tie, or you know, seven uh, percent probability of winning the championship, and the Cavs at six percent. And Vegas doesn't agree with that at all, and uh, the playoff experience people don't agree with that at all. And yet, you know, it's a balancing act between the talent that the Sixers have kind of shown because they're a dangerous team for sure on paper, at least. We, we we talk a lot in this community about you know whether pressure is real, whether clutch hitting hitting is real, and, and experience is another one that feels important and yet understudied, often theorized, understudied empirically. So we appreciated that article. One last piece you posted yesterday: the Yankees and Red Sox played last night for the first time for the season. You have a piece that says there it's going to be an unusually good. Rivalry. Not that last night would be any indication of that. You know, I'm sitting here with two Yankees and a Red Sox, right? So this is like a bit of a, a volatile morning on this front. Can you weigh in oh, here? Can you weigh in here on, on what, why you think it might be a special season in the in the AL East? Well, I mean, I think those two teams are among at least 
you know, on paper were among the top five or so teams in baseball going into the season. And that that hadn't really been the case for this rivalry uh, going back maybe to the days of like A-Rod just joining the Yankees and then uh, the Yankees-Red Sox playoff matchups. Like they had not synced it up where both teams were really good at the same time uh, since probably, you know, last year was probably the first time in a long time that it had been like a real sort of significant race down the stretch between the two teams and they both look like world series contenders at once uh and so yeah this year uh looks like it's going to be more of the same obviously the red sox came out and they dominated the yankees last night and i think the yankees you know they're still trying to kind of sort things out stanton obviously is struggling really hard uh at the plate right now but i you know people go through slumps i don't think we expect that the pressure of playing in new york for all the you know, ballyhooed effect that people talk talk about it having is going to cause him to suddenly turn into this strikeout machine that he's looked like in the first couple of weeks. And so I think eventually he'll start to hit. I think the Red Sox probably aren't as good as that 9-1 and record suggests, uh, although they are very good. Uh, and they're missing Xander Bogarts, too, at least right now. And so I, my, what, what, one of the points I was making in the story is, Later in the season, I think we'll get to see uh, both teams kind of at full strength and and playing to their talent, and that's going to be, uh, I think, a really compelling race. Probably, probably the only uh, really competitive division race in baseball this year. Once things kind of get sorted out as we as we move into the season, so you don't put much credence to this early this this first ten games where the Yankees have looked meh, meh and the and the Red Sox have looked dominant. Yeah, well, you know as well as I do that 10 games in baseball is a really, really small sample. And, you you know, I know that at this point in the season, this is all that we have to go off of. And so the temptation is hard to resist to kind of read the tea leaves of what happens in this first couple weeks of the season. But, you know, there's a bunch of baseball left to be played. It would be like making, you know, coming to big conclusions about the NFL season after, like, week one. Right. People do it, and they try to do it, uh, and, and it certainly is tempting to do. But at the same time, there's a lot of baseball left to be played. Absolutely, but I wanted to ask you one question dear to your heart. 9-1 and one Mets. <laughs> Yeah, that's another one. Well, I mean, I think if you uh, if you needed more evidence that the first ten games of the season might not be completely <laughs> it's the Mets. Of you the got it. The season, uh, it might be the Mets. And again, I think the Mets are, are good. We we actually have a podcast called Panic City where uh, me and a colleague talk about uh, the Mets each week, and we kind of thought going into the season that this year's team was a case of extreme potentials. If everyone stayed healthy and sort of reversed all that terrible injury luck from a year ago, then this team could potentially push the Nationals in the East and and actually be a pretty good team, especially if the pitchers stay healthy. And if, you know, health is a skill, uh, and if the team didn't stay healthy, uh, much like it did last season, it could be in for basically blowing up this sort of mini era of success that the Mets have had. Right now, it's looking more like the first version that we talked about, and, and people are really getting excited. Uh, but again, you know, the Mets, I think, last season started 7-1 and one also. It's not quite as good as the record this year, but that's a little bit hard to remember and hard to believe given the everything that happened after that. But basically from late April onward, it just was a complete disaster <laughs> in Queens. 
And so, you know, uh, forgive me if I'm a little bit skeptical and still kind of reserving <laughs> judgment for, for now. At least. We right, forgive Neil, you. Neil, thanks, <laughs> thanks for making the time for us this morning. Uh, keep up the great work always and uh, appreciate, your, appreciate your being on the show. Thanks. Always great to talk to you guys. You bet. That was Neil Payne, 538. You can follow him on Twitter at Neil underscore Payne. You can find his writings on 538. You can listen to his podcast. He's got one called The Lab on 538 and at Panic City Pod, at Panic City Pod for another another way to reach Neil Payne. That is three quarters of our show. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. We're rolling into the last quarter. Less than a quarter this time because we had two guests. We stacked them up a little bit in the last half hour. We've only got about 20 minutes here in the in the final segment. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddies and collaborators here at Wharton Moneyball, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradley. You can jump in here. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 7866 you can email us also, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or you can follow us, at us on Twitter. We're at WMoneyBall. Just off the phone with both Bruce Feldman and Neil Payne, fun conversations. I could talk about the NFL draft, especially with Bruce, kind of all day long. We'll hold off, I think, on the NFL draft. We're going to do more on that down the road. I want to ask you guys about a couple of stories that jumped out to me. Did y'all see this Andre Ingram story out of the Lakers? So, long time... Longtime minor leaguer, essentially. He's been in the development league for, it must be 10 years now. He's a 32-year-old player. The Lakers called him up. He made his debut, second oldest rookie debut in NBA history and the longest in decades and decades. And he lit it up for a 32-year-old rookie. And he so, lit up 19 points. He got the game ball from Luke Walton. How does one play for 10 years in a, in a league that no one knows exists? Well, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in basketball below the top line. You know, the European leagues, for example, a lot of guys go out there. It's I, th- I think you confused yourself with no one. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I don't think we've ever mentioned the, the development league. No, it's a good thing four for, years. for NBA because, you know, the rosters are so small that it, it allows them to take longer looks and allows them to experiment with a number of things. Well, so I know it, your, Europe exists, and we, that's where a lot of players go who the will D never league, make the The M- D-League the was an innovation. I don't know. It's, not, it's, not, it's probably about as old as Ingram's been playing, and it's not that long a thing. But what is unusual about him is that he's been in that league for that long. Most guys go over to Europe. They make more money in Europe. He always thought this was his best shot. He has some other commitments, whatever it is. It, he's like he's, he's second most experience of anybody in the history of the D-League. Anyway, lovely story. You might look it up. Guy comes in, plays one. He's got one more game. He's going to play his second NBA game, NBA game tonight. But he, he had a great game, great story, fun story. Another one that jumped out to me, guys, that's a little bit off the radar, is the Champions League. Now, we don't talk that much soccer around here until the World Cup rolls around. And I kind of feel like we miss this because the rest of the world pays so much attention to this. And this, of course, is an annual thing. It's complicated. If you're American and you don't follow soccer, it, it's kind of hard to keep track of. But the thing is winnowing down now. And there were a couple of big games last night that decided two of the, court, the, two, two of the semifinalists. So Roma, in the biggest upset, knocked out Barcelona yeah. in advance. And then Liverpool knocked out Man City in a in a Premier League rivalry, and so Roma and Liverpool are into the into the semis. And then the final quarterfinal games are tonight this afternoon. Bayern Munich is playing Sevilla, and Real Madrid is playing Juventus. I think it's awesome that they do this. By the way, I mean, I mean, I I, I don't think there's any other sport where you could sort of do this because there's not really like kind of a 
like a, a, a set of leagues that are competitive, you know, sort of uniformly competitive with each other like you have with soccer. Yeah. But the part I thought was interesting was related to also what you asked Neil Payne. And I was a little surprised at his answer, which was, isn't there lots of uncertainty in other sports? I mean, if I mean, th- I understand it's one game and it's one versus look, if. Roma plays Barcelona in a seven-game series. It's not obvious that Roma's going to beat Barcelona in a seven-game series. But in soccer, these types of large upsets seem to happen quite often. They don't seem to happen as much in other sports. Is that your assessment, Shane? Did you think his answer would be the other answer? Well, no. I mean, I I think Neil... Neil's point that I, I or that I sort of asked him about was more about the disparity between quote unquote the regular season and the playoffs that it is almost like an entirely like new reboot on, on on things and I don't I mean I don't follow Champions League to know as much whether the teams you know when you're when you're playing only other champions whether the game discernibly changes or something like that. Um, I mean, things like, I think, Roma against Barcelona are upsets just because Barcelona is, in our mind, such a dominant team. I think, you know, this is less surprising somehow. The chat, What's happening in the Champions League, I think, is less surprising just because, you know, they are all good, very, very, good teams very are, good They're one-game playoffs, is that? Well, two-game playoffs. Two games? Well, they play, it's like World League in that they play these whole pools. Right. And then the top teams have this two-game, yeah. the, the quarterfinals are two-game playoffs. They play a home-and-home. And, home. and strangely, and very oddly for American sports fans, they, they <laughs> it's cumulative goals. Yeah. It's aggregate score across these two games. Then, of course, because there are lots of ties, they have to have a, a tie break. And the tie break is who scored the most goals on the road. Yeah. So it's this kind of a complicated thing. Wow. It is very complicated compared to most. But we're down to one game. We're down to two games just in the quarters, and it's this this Munich, Sevilla, and Real Madrid, Juventus. They're this afternoon, 245, if you want to dial them up. But two weeks from now, we'll have the semis. And we're talking about, you know, illustrious clubs, you know. It's it's it, it's a it's a fun time of year to see these the top teams from these different European leagues playing each other, and it's, and it's coming down to the end. Well, two topics just related to that, that directly related is, one, you talked about design. So uh, it's interesting that they've chosen a two-game playoff, which mm-hmm. obviously leads to the potential of lots of ties as opposed to something longer or more definitive. That's one thing that's interesting about that. And then you also mentioned something, Kate, I thought was interesting, that the next round isn't for two weeks. I think I like that. Um, because in some sense there isn't this. I mean, we could say, well, it's not. It, it the, whoever wins, maybe it won't be due to fatigue. Both teams will have an opportunity to prepare. So, in some sense, you could make an argument from a. We we don't talk about this as much on Wharton Moneyball, but we talk about it some. This idea of design. How do you design competitions to make it fair? Because we agree. Mm-hmm. Let's take an example. Yeah. If the Warriors play, let's say the seven seed in the West turns out to be Minnesota, whoever it is, we know if they play them a thousand games. We know the Warriors are winning a yeah. large fraction of those games. But we also know a one-game playoff wouldn't be fair either. Where is that happy middle ground of how many games, how many days in between, etc.? I kind of like the way you've described it. I like the fact that there's two weeks in between, and I like the fact that it's a multiple-game playoff. I don't yeah, know if I, I like I an even ha- number of games I think with this ha- tiebreaker. They weird. They'd have to do that because, you know, the home field advantage yeah. is a substantive. This is the main and, reason, I think. And there's no way of establishing a home field advantage in, when they play in different leagues in Entirely, there's right. no way of establishing a home field who who kind of has earned the home field advantage. 
at least with seeding and like within a league's playoffs, you're like, well, they that team earned the home field advantage by playing better against the same relative same competition. Here, there's no comparative standards, so so I I, th- I, I don't know how else they would do it there, unless they would do it all at neutral sites. There's also a nice component in the design here where the initial pools are set by 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 chance by yeah. draw. And so it's just you know, this nice, it's always, the design, I agree, our design is a very interesting question. And it's always, the, what's the optimal mix of chance and non-chance components? And the, obviously the longer series you play, the more you factor chance out. And there's an optimal amount of chance in there. All right, guys, one other story that has been you know, receiving a lot of attention, I want to hear you talk about some, is the Otani performance. Ten games into the season, it's safe to say Otani has exceeded the hype. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he, what he's done is essentially he, he started the first game. His first game he play, pitched very well, not spectacularly. Give up, well, then he only gave up two hits and he gave up a three-run well, homer, but still, right. he, it's not like guys got eight no. hits, ten hits, and he gave up three and runs. Then, and then a week later, he essentially just pitches a perfect game into the sixth inning and looks unhittable with incredible number of swing and miss rates, just a slider. Uh, yeah. I mean, his splitter 12 was... Twelve strikeouts. Twelve strikeouts, splitter. And then in the middle, hits three home runs, including just a titanic blast to center field. I mean, and one of the things that we do in the StatCast era is we, we, we compare velocity off the bat and hitting a ball over a 110 miles an hour. He hit 112. <laughs> That's not quite Stanton, but it's it's in the top five of yeah. across across the season. Home runs of that of that velocity are just rare. So he's not just hitting home runs; he's hitting them exceptionally yeah. hard. So they, can, I, can you imagine a player that potentially? I mean, again, it has to it has to still happen, but could be in the top 10 in baseball in hitting and in the top 10 in baseball. Well, in he won't get that many at-bats. That's that's we can have to How often are they going to play him in the field? Or um, how often well, are they, the problem DH-ing. is he's, limit, he's but limited how often by are DH-ing. they playing? But how often are they playing him? I think it's maybe twice, two to three times a week tops. And will he ever pitch and DH? I don't think so. I think that's the uh, and maybe the real question is what is he going to do in in a National League park? I mean, well, they have him. Yeah. They'll have him. No, I mean, and so the question becomes: Will he? If he DHs, I mean, you'd like to have him actually. Potentially I want to know on days position. he's pitching in American League parks, is he going to also hit? I think it. it, it why not? Yeah, well, the problem is why not? the reason why is that you give up the DH for the rest of the game. No, I know that. that well, that's, I that's a problem. know that, but no, because he, if he comes out of the game, you still you, you, the pitcher now has to hit, or you have to move around the players to, to yeah, avoid the. Yeah, but pitcher I mean, hitting. sure. No, I understand that, and that's but, a, that's a drag. But so. I mean, he <laughs> is potentially um, a huge upgrade over whoever they have at DH uh, potentially, right? I mean, if he, if he keeps hitting like this. So, by the way, it looks to me like he threw both times against the A's. Is that right? And or should we discount that? Are they? Or, or, how do we feel about the A's? Generally not good. <laughs> I mean, still, 12 strikeouts in seven no. innings. I and, mean, and, against and, any team is very impressive. And swings and misses. and It's been remarkable in the sense that the, the spring training was so weak and just the turnaround at the major league level is surprising. Yeah. All right, fellas, hitting the home stretch here. Time for our final segment. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. Eric Bradlow, can you lead us down the final stretch here? Well, we might as well start with the topic we've just been talking about, which is Shohei Otani. So the first one, Over Under, is let's let's suppose we add his number of wins as a pitcher and his number of home runs as a hitter. <laughs> That's I, I'm just reading what's on the mm-hmm. piece of paper. This is yeah. interesting. Yeah. It, will his combined home runs plus wins be greater then it's an even number here, so I'll pick an odd number. 37 and a half. So he has three home runs and two wins. He's at five. 
will he exceed 37.5 for the entire season? So, for example, let's just do a little math here. If he won 15 games, he'd have to hit 23 home runs. There's an example. And maybe that's a line you might predict or not predict. So what do you think? Is he over? We'll start with Adi Weiner. I'm going to go with under, and my argument is 15 wins would be extremely impressive given the number, the length of time that pitchers pitch. They don't tend to tend to play pitch the whole game or even the majority of the game as they used to. So 15 wins would be an outside event. And I think he's getting the num- at-bats, half the at-bats of, a, of an everyday player. So you're looking at a rate of about 46 home runs a year. I'm going under. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to be with Audie as well. I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of like, to a certain extent, uh, I think it, it, he'll be surprising if he gets over twelve wins. Only mostly because of yep. starting, you know, starting pitchers don't go very deep into games, and the Angels are not, I don't think, going to be that good this year. So I, I think it's going to be tough for him to get however many, like you know, some twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight home runs that he'd have to get to get over that mark. I have, okay. little, I have little to add other than the observation that when we were growing up, like 20-game winners were kind of, it's kind of a standard. That was a right? yeah, young winner. That's yeah. right. You usually and, saw one. And yep. now, I mean, what, what it's happens rare. now? Yeah, it's just a big change. So big let me shift. just say, before we move to the next one, let me just say, Adi, I love what you did, which is you converted his home runs to a rate. And this we did this just last week. How many opportunities does Tiger Woods have to win majors? Well, how many plate appearances is he going to have? If you say half, then he'd have to hit at a 46 rate to win 23. Eric, and, and guys aren't going to hit at a 46 rate. There's this, no way you can predict this man. So this I'm going status, way under. This is a statistician's uh, secret sauce. No, I'm saying Co- it's constantly a, re- no, but I'm saying it's a great secret yeah. sauce for our listeners. Yeah. It's number of plate appearances, his rate. I think he might make the wins, but I'm not convinced he's going to make the home runs. All right, let's go to the next one. Let's. We've talked a lot about basketball this year. We have two here on our over-under. Um, let's start with our Philadelphia 76ers. Will they have more or less than one-and-a-half playoff series wins? I.e., are they going to make the finals or not? Eastern Conference finals or not? Right. Yeah, exactly. Would they get to the Eastern Conference finals? or Because or two playoff series wins would get them to the Eastern Conference yeah. finals. Or do they do worse than that? We'll start with you, Shane. I think they make it. I think they make it. You're going the over. Yep, over. I'm taking the over. I'm going over also, first and foremost, because I feel like a homer when it comes to the Sixers. Yeah. I'm, I'm pulling for them so much. Second, I kind of think this playoff experience thing is overrated, and you're not sufficiently accounting for the quality of the team. When is Embiid coming back? Let's Some, The hope, I mean, it, look, knowing Brett Brown, he could be playing tonight, and we wouldn't know until, oh, by the way, uh, you know, uh, he's playing tonight, just like, you know, with... Um, What's the guy's name? I just can't remember the uh, the, the rookie Knicks player. Oh, Markel Fultz. Fultz. Yeah, Fultz. Yeah. He just announced. By the way, oh, he's been out for sixty-eight games. Oh, by the way, he's suiting up in an hour and he's playing. <laughs> so, I mean, let's assume he'll be back by the first round by Sunday, which is probably the first game. Well, I'll make the bold over. I think it's a bold over because I think the money would be under. Yeah, I mean, if you put a playoff at fifty-fifty, you're 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 really going and against so, the odds. But, uh, yeah. but we're all threes going against the odds. Well, I'll tell you it's, why. I'm, I mean, and I'll tell you why. It's cheap. I'll tell you why I'm. To- I'll tell you why I'm torn. And I think tonight's game matters to me. If the Sixers end up as the four, if they lose tonight's game against the Bucks, and they end up as the four. I don't like their matchup against Indiana, and I definitely don't like their matchup against Toronto. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go the uh, – if that's the route, I'm going the under. If they end up playing, let's say, the 6, 7, or 8, and then they end up playing Boston, I like that matchup a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I'm t- I'm at 50. It's just t- – I think tonight's game actually matters. Does, does Milwaukee have anything to play for tonight? They do. So Milwaukee has the opportunity potentially to – like, well, for example, it's interesting – 
if they if they're they could end up playing the Sixers again, it's just a matter of who the, maybe they'd rather play. Would they rather play Toronto, Boston, or the Sixers? Who do they think they have a chance? They could be anywhere from six to eight. Wow. Okay. So big, they do big, meaningful game tonight. Dude. All right, let's go. And the other one, just in the NBA, just while we're here quickly, I think I know how Shane's going to Cavs plus two over under two and a half playoff series wins. So the Cavs make the finals. So we'll start with the you, NBA finals. The, do the Cavs make, make the, the NBA finals. finals over under two and a half playoff series wins for the Cavs? Do yeah, the Cavs make the finals? I'm 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 going to stay with the historical base rate. I'm I'm largely with Shane on this, though. My gosh, I mean they they seem dicier than ever, and and the homer within me thinks let's see something new happen. But no, I'm I'm going to stay with LeBron until proven otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I, I, LeBron makes the finals is the way I think we should always talk about it. It's LeBron that's making the finals. The Cavs are just kind of coming along with them. There it is. Hot take. Hotty, <laughs> what and you're I would go the other way, only because it seems fun. I overrated the the uh the Sixers on my previous round and I'm gonna underrate the Cavs now. And I'm and let me say why I'm gonna go that they will make the finals. Um but it has less to do with the Cavs. There I agree, there's uncertainty. But I've never seen in my view, I think that Toronto's flawed. I think Boston's injured. I think the Sixers are flawed. I've never seen a weaker, in my view, let's call them one through three in a conference. So I think I actually have more faith in the Cavs making the finals this year, not because of their greatness, because of the, the weakness, mass, of, the the weakness yeah. of the other three. Yeah. I, I think they're going to the finals. And I, well, let me put it this way. LeBron's going to the finals, yeah, and that's LeBron's the way I'm going to say it. All right, so one last one. That, there, <laughs> yeah. there we go. Maybe one last one. Um Giancarlo Stanton's off to a bad start. I think it's easy to say. Um, he apparently he's got a career strikeout rate, which is remarkably high, of twenty seven point nine percent. Just to put everybody there, if he gets six hundred at bats a season, which he might, um, that's or even more, he's in the hundred eighty to two hundred strikeout rate per season. W- this year, will he be above and beyond thirty percent strikeout rate? And he's currently at forty two point three percent. So, Adi, I'll start with you. Does he end up? Does he strike out a historic number of times? Does he no. Strike out two hundred and fifty times this no. year? Yes. No, he will not do that. I'm, I'm will he under- strike out two hundred times this year? It's a good chance. Two hundred would be well. That less would get us to thirty percent. No, no, it would 30... be more. Well, how many at bats is he? Get? Not at bats. How many plate let's, appearances is he going to get? Let's say he gets even six fifty. 650 times 0.3 is 195. So, so does he, you think he could end up right? I mean, that's not, you're, that's, it's close. It's close. 200? How well, I, think he, I think he makes it to 200 strikeouts. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's the Red Sox speaking right there. How, how much does your, how much do, within a career, how much does strikeout rates ch- Not vary? that much. See, they're saying he's 28% career. Correct. Do they bounce Last around? Last season, 23.6. So there's so some, the, but three or four, I mean. If I'm not, it's just two data points. But if that variability is there, then he could be plus three. Yeah. Last year it was minus the four. The variance is about is about well, two standard deviations would be about thirty points, and so two his his career is two eighty. So it's about it's over a standard. That's for deviation. batting average. That's batting average. No strikeout strikeout rate. It's the same percentage. So it's just you now you have more. It's about the same. That's my point. <laughs> so it sounds to me like there's enough variance that that it wouldn't be that unusual for him to be above thirty percent. And so I'm going to go over on that. Well, sounds good. Glad we've been doing over under. <laughs> All right, guys. That has been another Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics. We're going to do it live every Wednesday morning, eight to ten Eastern. This has been Cade Masty hosting with the whole crew: Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Many thanks to our crew, our bosses, our overlords, Daniel Bruno and Matty Dots. Can't do it without you guys. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week. Come back and join us between now and then. 
Enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.